our girls, uh, they've gone to Awanas as long as they've been able to. Awanas is a little uh, program put on by the Gospel Chapel, and it's a worldwide program, actually. And uh, they also go to Bethel Bible Camp, which really pleases me. And a big part of both is scripture memorization. And this is that's obviously a really good thing. Learning scripture is good and important. After, after her week at Bethel, we asked Zoe, what did you learn? And she said, well, I, I learned some memory verses. And we said, oh, great. What memory verses do you remember? And, and Zoe, she doesn't often remember. And so we didn't know what we were getting into when we asked her what memory verse she remembers. But she said, I remember one. Jesus swept. <laughs> the, easy, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And every kid, when you tell them, memorize any verse you want, every kid knows Jesus wept. It's two words. And she said Jesus swept, which is hilarious to me. Um, memorization is good. It can give you a foundation that you can return to anytime you need truth. You can just re- recall it right away. However, memorization does have a bit of a downside in that it rips isolated verses out of their larger context. That doesn't mean they become untrue per se, but it does mean they can be misconstrued. It means that they lose some of their purpose and power when you take them out of their larger context. Take John 3.16 for an example. Everyone knows John 3.16. John 3.16 is one of those tent peg keynote uh, verses that we all know, and it's good that we all know it. it. It is the gospel in two sentences or whatever. But who can name John 3.17? Uh, and John 3.17 to me is just as important as John 3.16. For the Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That's just as important. He didn't come to condemn us. We're not stuck in our brokenness. He came to save us. Many of us know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's another sort of tent peg verse that many of us know. Maybe all of us know. But I don't know why we know 3.23 and not 3.24. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We like 323 because it shows how messed up we are. And that's important. We need to know how broken we are. All have sinned. And in fact, that all means Jews and Gentiles in the context beforehand. It also means each of us individually. But in the context, it's more than just you're all a bunch of screw-ups. It goes on to you are justified freely by his... Yes, you've all sinned. But just as equally, you are all saved by his grace. I don't know why we know one and not the other. I could go on and on. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the last one I'll highlight. That's the, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope in a future. How many of us have a Bible cover with that on it or a bookmark? Or It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. The prophets are actually super underrated for the, the beauty that they have in them. But the context of that verse specifically is God saying, I'm going to send you into exile. Or you are already in exile and you will be for another 70 years before I bring you back. Yeah, I know the hope, the plans I have to give you a hope and a future to prosper you and not to harm you. In 70 years. In 70 years. It's claiming that promise, which is to a very specific community, is a little like if I heard Daryl promising Andrew that, you can use my car anytime you want. And I overhear that. And two weeks down the road, I come up and say, hey, I'm going to borrow your car because I heard you promise it to Andrew. It's me eavesdropping on a promise. Now, obviously, God does have plans for you. He does know your future. And he does want to 
bless you. Obviously, that is still true. There's still a reason why we memorize it. But in the context, it's not exactly what it's saying. So memorizing these verses is very good. It's something that we should all engage in. It's, it gives us ready recall to words that inspire us and fill us with hope and peace and joy that's manifested in how God loves us. So, yes, memorize verses. But ripped from their context, even the best verses are left flapping in the breeze a little bit. It's more wise not to just learn a few isolated verses, but to know the entirety of the story, to get the whole picture, the whole scope from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to fulfillment. It's better to have the whole picture in mind, I think. That doesn't mean you have all of Scripture memorized. Do any of you have all of Scripture memorized? No, I don't No, I have very few pieces of Scripture memorized. But rather than just some isolated portions, we need to be familiar with the whole story. Right? I think. For example, immediately before John 3.16, Jesus is talking about Moses and a snake in the desert, raising it up on a pole. Without the whole context of the whole story, what is he talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Now, you can understand John 3.16, obviously, without that context, without the Old Testament context that goes with it. But with the Old Testament context, with the line of, of stories that goes back thousands of years, that verse, John 3.16, is so much more beautiful and meaningful and powerful because of the context. At its worst, without context, cherry-picking memory verses out of Scripture can be damaging and, and blasphemous. This happens a lot with things like people who picket, picket against homosexual people, where they pull a verse and that's what's on the placard and they forget that, yeah, there's condemnation for all. There's also, what's that thing in Romans 3.24? Justification for all. There's John 3.16, there's also 3.17, that he doesn't come to condemn, but to save. And if you don't have the whole picture in mind, cherry-picking these verses means you just are conveniently displaying your own theology, broken though it may be. So without context, memory verses can be dangerous. I'm not going to say that's what happened with our passage today, but I am going to agree with my friend Jenna. My friend Jenna, I've mentioned her before, uh, actually two years ago, she gave um, a testimony at Bethel that was really, really beautiful about her struggle with mental illness. And this year, I served at Bethel with her again, and she, uh, her testimony was about her struggles with the church and some of the really harmful, hurtful things she's seen people in the church do and how she's wanted to just give up on the church altogether. And thankfully, she's committed to being the solution and not part of the problem. Um, she wants to cultivate good back into the church, which is her whole testimony. But she really quickly highlighted a few things that she takes issue with in the church, and one of them one of the things that she said, and it probably went over most of the kid's head, but it made me cheer a little bit, was he said, I want, I want people to know that Philippians 4.13 is not just for hockey players. And I knew what she meant, and I cheered a little bit. She's a woman detailing her most recent pains and struggles, and she's reclaiming a powerful piece of scripture that's been mistreated and misunderstood for too long. And that's Philippians 4.13. That's our passage today. I hope to further reclaim 
Philippians 4.13 for all of us today. I want to reclaim it from victorious hockey players, from historically great quarterbacks, from medal-winning gymnasts, and we'll look at all of them. I want to reclaim it from that. Because out of context, if you take Philippians 4.13, which is a memory verse that once you hear it, you'll absolutely be familiar with it, if you don't already know it. Philippians 4.13 is used a lot, and it is a beautiful verse with tons of power and meaning to it. It's good to memorize it. It's good for this to be one of those tent peg verses, tent pole verses that we can found a faith on. But out of context, as I'm going to kind of explain today, it can be a little bit damaging. Or at least it can lead to some misunderstanding. And I want to correct that. So before we do that, let's read the passage at hand. Let's read Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to to have plenty. Need and plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And there it is. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm certain you've heard this before. Even if you're relatively new to the Bible or relatively unfamiliar with its contents, I'm sure you've heard this. It's one of the five probably most commonly trinketized verses in the New Testament. By trinketized, I mean we put that verse on everything. Wall decorations, Bible covers, bookmarks. We'll put it wherever we can. And I'm not saying that's wrong. In fact, it's very good for us to see this verse everywhere. You also hear it everywhere, even in popular culture. This is Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was a quarterback, first for the Florida Gators in collegiate football, and then for the Denver Broncos in the NFL. Like Philippians 4.13 itself, which is familiar even to non-Christian people, even non-Christians are familiar with this verse, Tim Tebow himself may be familiar to you even if you've never watched a minute of football in your life. He was a sensation for about half a decade from the late 2010s into the early, or the late 2000s to the early 2010s. He went to two college finals and won one of them. He was awarded the Heisman Trophy, which is basically MVP of all college football players. Um... And then when he made the majors, he wasn't super good, but he somehow won himself into several playoff games and won one of them. So people for a period of time either totally adored Tim Tebow or were totally repulsed by Tim Tebow. Tebow was really, the reason why he was either adored or um, hated, despised, was, was because Tim Tebow was really upfront with everyone about his faith. In fact, you can see it painted on his eye black here. Philippians 4.13. He wore it on his, he also did John 3.16 from time to time. Tim Tebow wanted the world to know that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. Now, Tim Tebow is a very impressive specimen. He is very well built. And that is, does that, is that the kind of strength that, that Jesus gives him? Well, he wanted the world to know that all his strength comes from Jesus. 
that all things he does comes from Jesus. All his historic pastor efficiency ratings, all the college victories and accolades, he can do all these things because Christ gives him the strength to do so. Tim Tebow wasn't just famous because he was a Christian playing football. That probably accounts for 40% of all football players. You watch after a game, they all circle up and have a prayer time. Christianity is very common in football because football is very popular in the American South. Probably 5% of football players have Philippians 4.13 tattooed on them somewhere. It is incredibly common. So that's not what was unique about Tim Tebow, that he's a Christian. What made Tim Tebow unique was that he was an outspoken Christian who was very successful at playing football. He was a big-name guy who was very loud about his faith in a lot of beautiful ways. Again, I'm not condemning him for this. But the scripture that he wanted to introduce the world to was Philippians 4.13. This is the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine, which is a pretty prestigious, pretty famous sporting magazine. And that's what he wanted people to know. He can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. Or take Olympic champion Dominique Dawes. Angie, who is Dominique Dawes? She's a gymnast. Angie loves gymnastics. Um, Dominique Dawes was a gold medal gymnast. She went to the Olympics in 2000, 2004, and 2008. Um, And she's a devoted Christian. In fact, she has many speaking engagements. And from all accounts, her life is this beautiful life of service to Christ. So... She's a hero in a lot of ways. And in 2016, I watched this clip last night. She was being interviewed during the Rio Gymnastics, which was 2016. She was being interviewed on Good Morning America. And the interviewer asked her, how do you still yourself? How do you quiet yourself? How do you, I don't want to misquote, how do you stay composed and control your breathing before walking out there to do your, your flips and your feats of strength and dexterity? How do you, how do you compose yourself? And immediately, Dominique Dawes responded with, I rely on scripture and I say a prayer. And then she quoted Philippians 4.13, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what she meditates on before she heads out to win gold medals. Or take the example of Steph Curry. Anybody hear of Steph Curry before? Nobody. Angie has. Steph Curry is one of the five best basketball players playing basketball right now. In fact, He's the greatest three-point shooter of all time. And how he plays the game has completely revolutionized how the game of basketball gets played in the last 10 years. He's kind of a big deal athlete. And in college, he used to write Philippians 4.13 with a marker on the whites of the soles of his shoes before every game. And he can I think he continues to do it every once in a while, even in the big leagues. He then goes out and wins championships and unanimous MVPs and changes the whole way an entire sport gets played. Because Christ gives him the strength to do that. And it's not just athletes. I googled, I typed into Google Philippians 4.13 celebrities. And one of the first 10 things that came up was an article on something called HollywoodLife.com, which is not a publication I would ever recommend or regularly um, read. But this article was about Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez is a former child actor and pop star who has the a somewhat dubious claim of having the most followers of anyone on planet Earth on Instagram. Um, and this article was about Selena Gomez's new tattoo. And I kid you not, the subtitle was, Selena's sexy new tattoo is a secret no more. And you know what that t- tattoo is? A little Philippians 4.13. And that's the word that they chose to use for this. It's just so bizarre to me. Again, don't get me wrong. 
I'm glad that Tebow and Dominique Dawes and Steph Curry and Selena Gomez and others draw attention to scripture. That's a good thing. They all have enormous platforms and they use part of their platforms to give glory to God. That's a good thing. I'm glad that they rely on their faith in a public way. Again, that's a good thing. I'm glad that their private lives bear out the fact that they have good hearts in their chest and good brains in their head. That is a good thing. But here's why I agree with Jenna that we need to reclaim Philippians 4.13 from the Tim Tebow's and Dominique Dawes and Steph Curry's of the world. And it has to do with context. The passage that we read, Philippians 4, 10 to 13, is itself part of a larger context, one which we will examine next week as we wrap up Philippians. Paul's finally getting around to saying thank you to the Philippians for their financial gift that they've sent to him. Saying thank you was one of the chief reasons why Paul wrote this letter at all. They sent a big gift to him, and he's appreciative of that, and so he writes this thank you letter in in response. And when he does write this letter, he writes it in a way that sounds strange to us, even rude to us. He says things like, at last you renewed your concern for me. Like, finally you got around to sending me money. He says things like, not that I'm actually in need, which is a, sounds like he's brushing off their sacrificial gift, a bunch of poor people giving money to Paul. And he says, I don't really need this. To our ears, it comes across rude. And I'll explain it further next week. But that's the context of this passage. The Philippians had sent this sizable financial gift to Paul, along with Epaphroditus, one of their best servants, to serve with Paul. And he writes this letter largely to show his gratitude for it. But consider the larger context of the letter. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. That's right, Bob. From house arrest in most likely Rome. Uh, and how are things going for him in this Roman house arrest? He talked about it in chapter 1. Are things easy for Paul? No. There's a bunch of other Christians running around making life really hard for Paul, trying to discredit Paul, trying to bring shame on Paul. And that would be a tremendously difficult thing to bear. People are making life miserable for him. And not only that, but he is chained at the wrist at all times to a symbol of the Roman governmental oppression. He's chained at the wrist at all times to a Roman soldier. He can't escape that. He goes to the bathroom, Roman soldier's there with him. He kneels down in prayer, soldier kneels down in prayer with him. Everywhere he goes, the symbol of oppression is literally tied to him. So things are not easy for Paul. And To top it all off, there's only one church that sends him funds. Only one church. And they haven't done so probably for a couple years. And that's the Philippians. Paul's conditions as he writes Philippians are about about as far off from a football championship or a basketball MVP or an Olympic gold medal as you can imagine. Things are very hard. And what is the context of the Philippians to whom Paul addresses this letter? They're experiencing crushing oppression and persecution, even martyrdom, at the hands of their zealous emperor-loving neighbors. Judaizers and false teachers, who try to make them Jewish before they can become Christians, they're threatening the church from the outside, while from the inside, selfish arguments and disunity threaten to tear them apart from within. Paul talks about all these things. We've talked about all of them in the last eight months. Plus, there's this, the Philippians have this lingering poverty for most of the congregants. And the church as a whole is not a bunch of rich people. There's a few rich people, like Lydia, the purple dealer, um, possibly the jailer from the book of Acts. They ha- would have had some money, but most of the people at this ch- church had no money. And they gave what money they had to Paul. 
So again, the church in Philippi is closer to a homeless shelter than a medal podium or awards ceremony. But still, Paul lets us in on a little secret. He is not rejoicing because of some great human victory. He is not rejoicing that their gift can now buy him some luxury in a time of despair. He's not even rejoicing over the giving of the gift at all. And we'll talk about that next week. It's not the gift that he writes to say thank you for. It's something else. Cliffhanger. What's it going to be? Instead, Paul declares that he's not even in need, which is a seemingly terrible thing to say to a bunch of impoverished people who collect what, collect what money they have to give to him, to buy bread and a new tunic. And he says, you know what? This is great. I don't really need it. So why isn't Paul in need? Why does he not need it? Why is Paul rejoicing despite the brutal circumstances he's experiencing and the brutal circumstances his friends who are sending him this money are experiencing as well? Why is, why is he rejoicing? Why isn't he in need? Well, because he's learned the secret that surpasses need, as well as wants, as well as desires. And that secret is no secret at all. That secret is contentment. Contentment. In Paul's day, there's a group of philosophers known known as Stoics. That's a word we still use today. If somebody is Stoic, they face all of life's up and downs with crossed arms and a stiff upper lip. If you're very Stoic, you just take things as they come. You just deal with them as they come. Why is Sharon laughing? Because Andrew's arms are folded. Andrew is a Stoic. He takes whatever comes at him. Whatever chicken feeder breaks down, he's ready to handle it. The the Stoics had a lot of sway in Paul's day. They believed that physical pain should be met with the same attitude as profit and pleasure. They valued above all other values, the Stoics valued above all other things, self-sufficiency. That you are okay, that you in yourself know who you are and you are okay no matter what comes. Well, Paul borrows from the Stoics, but he turns their whole thinking on its head. Because for Paul and for us, it's not about self-sufficiency, it's about Christ-sufficiency. You cannot do it on your own. You require the power of Christ within you to handle life's ups and downs. Jesus, It's not, I am all that I need. It's Jesus is all Paul needs. In fact, earlier in this letter, he had written, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But to live is Christ. And he wrote, I consider, just one chapter earlier, he wrote, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, Jesus is everything. Knowing him is everything. Having his presence with him is everything. Jesus is life itself, no matter what life tosses at you. If you have Jesus, you have all you need. Period. Mary, do you mind if I share what you shared with me earlier about your mom? Mary shared a really beautiful thing that her mom refused pain medication, but in her refusal, she clung to the old gospel standards, the old rugged cross, and in the garden, and what was the other one? Amazing amazing grace, of course, amazing grace. She clung to those because she knew that pain is coming, death is coming, but there's somewhere that I can get strength in the midst of this. I may have this tremendous pain and I may be suffering and hurting and I see people hurting around me because of this, but I have strength. I know where to find my strength. I know where to find life even as death draws near. It's a really beautiful story. And this is the source of Paul's great contentment as well. 
This is the secret that he lets the Philippians and the Clydeans in on. We don't have many stories of Paul being in plenty. That is not what you think of when you think of the Apostle Paul, right? That life is easy and comfortable. We don't have many stories of Paul being in plenty, but we know of many times when he was in want. This is, I'll just leave this in the back. This is 2 Corinthians 11. This is Paul listing all the hardships he's gone through. So we know that Paul is well accustomed to hunger and poverty and want, not to mention abuse and suffering and loneliness and imprisonment and scorning and the odd shipwreck or two. We know the many lows that Paul was subjected to, and he was enduring one even as he wrote these words under house arrest. And yet, for Paul, there was a joyful, fulfilling sense of contentment that no matter what the circumstances were, he had all he needed. Whether he was filled with aching and longing and hunger, which was typical for Paul, or whether he was filled with satisfaction and comfort and fullness, which was not typical for Paul. Whatever it was, though, whether he was cresting a beautiful wave of success or whether he was being pounded to the ocean floor of suffering, Paul exhibited this this peaceful sense of contentment that conquered whatever circumstances were at hand. He ended off the last sermon we read by saying, peace of God will guard your hearts. That peace does guard his heart, and it brings him contentment. No matter what highs or what many, many, many lows, he knew of peace and contentment. We know the depths and the pains that Paul was plummeted into. How could he possibly know contentment and peacefulness and hope of that kind enduring all of this? And when things were going well, how did he keep from resting on his laurels and declaring that enough was enough, I've accomplished all I need to accomplish, I deserve some acclaim, I deserve some glory, and I deserve some comfort? How did he prefer Paul the Apostle, who did all of this, wrote half of our New Testament, How did he keep himself from the pride of accomplishment? How did he keep himself humble? How was he able to keep his eyes up and ahead, as he writes in Philippians 3, 13 to 14? How was he able to keep his eyes on the prize when suffering or self-righteousness, dual threats, approached him and, and threatened to capsize him and have him focus inwardly? How did he keep his eyes on the prize when he was hurting so bad or when he's accomplished these great things and pride could just consume him. How did he do that? How did he maintain a faithful, sacrificial focus on Christ Jesus when circumstances both pleasant and painful would cause lesser disciples to waver and fall away? How was he able to do that? How could he keep his eyes up and ahead in greatness and in suffering? How? Because he can do all this through Christ who gives him strength. He can do all this, and that all this doesn't mean just all the great things he's doing. That all this means contentment in success and contentment in suffering because the Holy Spirit empowers him and enables him to be. We know that Paul faced far more hardships than any of us will ever face, and he faced them with contentment, with joy. He faced them with a peace that comes only when we trust that in our brokenness, he is Redeemer and he will fix in our weakness, that he is able to do mighty things. That in our smallness, his greatness is magnified. That in our death, we have life. Even when we die, we still have life because Christ is life and we still have Christ. So in all those hardships and on the flip side, in all these great things he's doing, he had that joy, that contentment, that peace because he had Christ. 
in the end, Philippians 4.13, <clears throat> I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, isn't about the I can. That shouldn't be the focus of it. It's not that you can. The focus of it should be through Christ. That in him, filled with him, for him, we can do mighty powerful things. It's not the I can that's important. If the world only hears us quote that verse during successes, then that means we've begun to equate this passage with personal victory. And Philippians 4.13, like all of Philippians, has nothing to do with personal victory. Paul is quick to deflect personal victory as quickly as possible. It's not about your own victory. It's not about your own glory. It's not about your own success. It's not about the good things you do. Just like it's not about your brokenness. It's not about your pain. It's not about your suffering. It's about something else. It's about the glory of Christ who is made evident in your successes and in your failures and in your suffering. If the world only hears us quote that verse during successes, we begin to equate faith with personal victory. But church history is full, chock full of faithful disciples with way more joy and peace and contentment than myself or any of us who were starved and sawn in half and shot in the head because of their faith. They had all that joy, peace, and contentment, and they died bloody deaths. Just like Paul, just like Jesus. So Philippians 4.13 isn't for just our times of victory. It can't be. Because not everybody is victorious. At least not in an earthly sense. Their joy, their peace, their contentment never wavered. They were given the opposite of personal victory. They were given personal condemnation and death. And yet they are the truly victorious ones. They, if the words of Jesus are to be believed, they are the truly blessed ones, those who suffered. The ones who are crushed by the world and respond with faith. The ones who are crushed by the world and respond by faith are awarded a medal greater than any MVP. They're awarded a championship greater than any Super Bowl or, or any Stanley Cup or anything. They were the ones with heroic strength, and that strength did not come from themselves. That strength came from Christ alone. It's not about what I can do. It's about what Jesus can do in and through me and for himself. It's about the strength he gives me to rely on him when life is so challenging that my many wants threaten to consume me. It's about the strength he gives me to rely on him when life is so comfortable that my many wealths threaten to consume me just as thoroughly. We can get consumed this way or that way, as Marnie mentioned during communion. There's a lot of things that can consume us, wealth or want, plenty or pain. It's about looking through our times of plenty and looking through our times of pain to see Christ get glorified. That is the strength that we need. Before I wrap things up, I want to return to the three athletes that I mentioned earlier because I kind of threw them under the bus. I mentioned we need to reclaim Philippians 4.13 from them, but that's only partially true. It is true that Christ gives us strength to do victorious things. It, it, Paul mentions in times of uh, plenty. There weren't very many of those for Paul, but there were those times. And, and those of us in times of plenty, P.S., that's all of us in the Western world, those of us in times of plenty should see that as coming as a gift from the God who gives us strength. But there's more to the, the, the stories of these three athletes that I want to share real quick. Tim Tebow, he washed out of football pretty quickly. He is now playing minor league baseball, which is a far cry from the heights of his professional sports career. 
Um, he went from championships and endorsements, and everybody knows his name, to he's in some second-tier minor league baseball team that nobody cares about. And yet, he spoke of God giving him strength in the times of victory. And even as he toils in obscurity, which is a terrible thing to say about playing baseball for a living, but even as he toils in obscurity, he is still adamant that it's God who gives him the strength to do so. He derives his waning strength from Christ. He glorifies God in his more recent failures, just as he had done in his tremendous successes. That is commendable. Dominique Dawes continues to point to Jesus in all things, and she is, by all accounts, a tremendous ambassador for the kingdom of God. But I want to highlight something. This article I read about her also highlighted something one of her Olympic teammates was quoted as saying in, an art, in that article as well. It says, another gymnast, Jake Dalton. Have you heard of Jake Dalton? I haven't either, which is the point. Another gymnast, Jake Dalton, actually had the text of Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his left side just before heading to the 2012 Olympic Games. He also has praying hands tattooed on his right side, symbols of his Christian faith. And this is a quote from Jake Dalton. It was kind of my last little thing to remind myself to do everything that I could to be ready for that team and, excuse me, and try to get on that team. And whatever happens, it was God's plan to happen, whether I made the team or not, he has said of the Philippians tattoo. Whether you make the team or not, whether you win your Olympic gold or you fail your qualifiers, he is still the one who gives you strength. And I find that admirable. And Steph Curry, MVP of the NBA, has a tattoo that I think is far more appropriate for a millionaire professional athlete than Philippians 4.13 is. He has a tattoo of a little greater than and less than sign. I think it's on his wrist. And he's said that that is a reference to John 3.30, that Christ must become greater and I must become less. Which is a really beautiful thing for one of the five most famous players in your league to say. Only Christ can give us that kind of strength, the strength to be humble enough to give him glory and reserve none for ourselves. And that's what Philippians 4.13 is about. It's not about tossing a ball or doing a flip off a padded bar and winning applause and accolades for it and then saying, God gave me the power to do this. God gave me the physical strength and the drive to make this happen. Although that may be true, that is not what Philippians 4.13 is primarily about. It's not about receiving the strength to do whatever we want and get recognized for it. It's not about asking for whatever we want like it's some magic incantation. God, you said that if I ask in your name, you'll give me whatever I want like it's some abracadabra or something. The focus of 4.13 isn't on the I can portion so much as the through him portion. It's about receiving the strength to do what is required of us as everyday common disciples. Everyday acts of strength and heroics. Everyday acts of humility and servitude. Everyday acts of love and compassion. The strength to rejoice in times of suffering. The strength to remain humble in times of plenty. And again, friendly reminder that we are all in times of plenty, even if your mortgage isn't going as you planned, or even if your van blew up on the way to Jasper Camp, you are still people in plenty. We absolutely are. It's about seeking the strength to serve and sacrifice and submit to our gracious gift-giving God. Gifts that he gives like peace and grace and hope and joy and contentment. It's about seeing all those gracious gifts as an opportunity to become less so he can become greater. It's about learning to live in want and in plenty because Christ is more than enough for both. 
Whether we have nothing and are hungry for everything, Christ is enough. Or whether we have everything and are hungry for nothing, Christ is enough. He's always enough. Here's a really great quote from an article I read by a guy named Jonathan Merritt who wrote in religionnews.com in January of 2014. It's a really great quote. Paul is not encouraging Christians to go out and conquer the world with Philippians 4.13. Rather, he's reminding them that they can press on when the world conquers them. The Bible does not teach God will give you the strength to do whatever you set your mind to. And in fact, I love this point he makes. Anytime your dominant theological foundation begins with God will give me, then you need to rethink everything. Because that's not what the gospel's about. It's about what you can give because what he has already given. God is not a heavenly bellhop or divine sugar daddy or cosmic power plant to fuel your dream quest. Instead, the Bible teaches God is a sustainer when life feels unsustainable. That's what Philippians 4.13 is about. The context of Philippians 4 isn't great human victory, although that would be true for Paul. It's small human victory. In this case, a bunch of poor people giving a gift to somebody out of the goodness of their hearts. It's also not really about victory at all, the context. It's about defeat. It's a suffering apostle writing joyful letters while chained to his oppressor. So if it's about victory, it's a small victory, but mostly Paul's writing in defeat. And that context, joy and contentment in suffering and sacrifice, that context is what we need to reclaim from these athletes and from whenever we use Philippians 4.13. If they can lose... And still quote Philippians 4.13, that's when you know their faith is substantial. But guess what? That's true for you as well. If you, in your times of loss, in your times of want, in your times of hurt, can still say, it's Christ who gives me strength, that's how you know your faith is anything real at all. We're going to close by singing Stronger, which I think wraps up all of this in a beautiful way. If you need to go, you're welcome to do so. Um, But I'm going to pray first. Jesus, thank you for the strength that you give us. We are very weak. We are very broken. We know suffering. We know failure. Um, But you give us the strength in times of want to cling to you and trust in you. You give us the strength in times of plenty to turn everything over to you, to humble ourselves in your presence. You give us the strength to do that. I pray that you would make us content people who are able to turn to you no matter what life throws at us because you are life. So thank you for the life that we have in you. You are stronger, Jesus, and you share that strength with us. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Because for Paul and for us, it's not about self-sufficiency, it's about Christ-sufficiency. Jesus swept. (laughs) Yo, yo, this is what it is.